Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Making It in Asheville podcast. This is the podcast where each week we intend to sit down with an Asheville local uh, entrepreneur, business owner, or community leader and ask them what they are making and how they are making it in Asheville. This week, however, uh, <laughs> a couple things have happened and I want to bring you up to speed. So one, there's a, you know, a, a relatively important global event happening that's not the pandemic there is a uh, a war between russia uh and the ukraine that has broken out in the last week uh and that is probably a number one thing uh a deep second behind that is a realization here at making it in Asheville how much harder it is to uh produce content as quickly as we have in the past, now that there is a uh, a third member of my family. And so uh, there's going to be a quick change for the next uh, four weeks, I think, uh, or at least uh, the remainder of March. So um, in lieu of continuing on with fresh episodes, uh, what we're going to do is a little bit of a, uh, of a best of and recaps of our favorite episodes, your favorite episodes of the first 100. And then we're going to start with uh, Q2 will be a fresh full season of new interviews and new conversations with the Making It in Asheville community. Uh, We used to have a breakneck speed when it came to sitting down, having a conversation and turning that conversation into a freshly recorded um, episode harder to do now. Um, and so rather than, uh, burn the candle deep into the night or early, early into the morning, uh, and maneuver these interview conversations, uh, to, to happen in very specific and very tight windows, we're going to give our guests uh, some more times to be able to sit down with us. We're going to take some more time to be able to turn those conversations into meaningful uh, podcast episodes and additional materials for the you and for the Making It Asheville community. And so with that, um, just my hopes that uh, you and yours are feeling safe and, uh, and healthy and that... Uh, this episode, an episode with Gareth Higgins, is as powerful to you as it has been to me and to my wife, Sarah, when we think about who we aspire to be in our community. Uh, a lot of the lessons, a lot of the concepts that came up sometimes for the first time in this conversation, um, we, we find ourselves going back to those concepts. We find ourselves considering some of the thoughts and some of the uh, advice that we, we got from this episode with Gareth Higgins. And so uh, I believe we do a thorough introduction on the episode, but just in case, uh, Gareth is a very special person. Uh, no longer, I believe, lives in Asheville. I believe he uh, moved back to Ireland at the start of the pandemic. So uh, perhaps this is our first non-making it in Asheville uh, recap guest, but he is a very special part of my lived experience here in Asheville. And so with that, uh, 
we'll let this episode play. Please enjoy uh, this beautiful conversation with Gareth Higgins on the Making in Nashville podcast. And welcome to episode 42 of Making It in Asheville. We normally start with a sound bite. This one is bigger than a bite. It's probably a full-blown meal. So we wanted to say hello before you listen to effectively five minutes or so of our guest, Gareth. Um, we think it's a really meaningful sound bite. It's going to create a ton of context for the intro and for the episode generally. Um, but just leading with it would have been a little strange. So uh, please enjoy this sound meal more than a sound bite from our guest gareth higgins see you in a couple minutes i have an architect friend in scotland who says the purpose of architecture is to help us live better and you know you've seen bad architecture on that definition and you've seen great architecture does it help us live better i think that's the purpose of all art all storytelling actually to help us live better and that doesn't mean it doesn't it can't deal with difficult subjects in fact it must deal with difficult subjects if it's going to help us live better it just needs to be honest about those difficult subjects so for me because movies are the art form that has come to mean the most to me and because often these days we don't get the chance to truly drink deeply at the well of a movie even if we go to see it in the first place you got to you know go through it's a busier experience. It's a noisier experience. The lights tend to come on before the credits are over. You don't get to breathe it in. And then there's no sort of interpretive mechanism to help us really make sense of what we just saw, uh, ask our questions, feel connected to other people who felt the same way. So we've done this festival. This is the fifth time we've done it, second time in Asheville. And uh, we do two or three things at it. One, we show beautiful films in a beautiful environment, Diana Wortham Theatre and the Fine Arts Theatre both downtown, um, and we give those films the opportunity to breathe. So we keep the lights off until the end credits have finished, and we invite people to stay quiet until they're over. Um, the second thing we do is we pair the films with conversations and activities that will deepen the meaning of the film. So we do stuff that's more than just a typical question and answer session. It's more about what's going on in you and how would you like to change uh, uh, as a result of seeing uh, this film, we have a lot of fun with it as well. Uh, and the third thing is we invite people to connect with each other. You know, whether you've come as a group or you want to meet other people who are there, there's mealtimes and opportunities for people to hang out and get to know other people who feel the same way about some things and maybe some new friendships can begin. And the day before the festival, we have a, uh, a workshop called Rewriting Your Life, which is a deeper dive on many of the things we've talked about this afternoon to think about what's the story you're telling? Is it true and is it helpful? If it's not, how can we help find a truer version and a more helpful version? One of the things we're really committed to is um, if, if you're, if you're uh, one, of the, one of the privileged people like me who has the money to attend an event like this, we invite you to pay to register to come to the event. We even invite you to pay more than the registration fee if you can. And if you are in financial need and can't afford the registration fee, you can come as well with no questions asked and no embarrassment. All you need to do is email us and um, tell us what you can afford. Because I think we're past the point of thinking that a beautiful experience of community should have a price tag on it that only those who can afford it can get in. Um, we find 
I do this with my own books. When I'm speaking at an event and I have books for sale, I'll let people know what the cover price is and tell them it'd be really great if you can pay that. And if you can't afford that, you take less than that. And um, if you can't afford that, you can have a book for free. And if you can afford more than the cover price to help me share this book with other people, I invite you to pay more. And I will say in six years of doing that, people are always generous. People are always contributing more to help us give it away or to sell it for less. And there's lovely experiences where people say, look, I can't afford $16.99, but I might be able to afford 14 or 8 or nothing. It's one. It builds relationship and community. Generosity feeds on generosity. I have experienced so much generosity at the hands of this culture here in the U.S. This culture has helped me waken up to my own gifts in ways that Irish culture has a different way of doing things. Now, there are gifts in Irish culture too, um, but American generosity, American belief that we can do good things with our lives that help other people, that's beautiful, and it's a rare gift. And when people put that generosity out into the world, it just it's not like people say this like it's a woo-woo mystical thing, and maybe there is a woo-woo mystical part to it. I just think, it's a practical reality when someone does something generous and you see them doing that. It's an evolutionary reality that you're going to imitate what they do. So register for Movies and Meaning at moviesandmeaning.com if you can. And if you're in financial need, just contact us through the website. We'd much rather have you there and you not pay us or pay us less than have you miss this experience. Welcome to the Making It in Nashville podcast, a podcast where you get to hear the stories behind some of your favorite artists and businesses in town. Each episode, we interview a local Ashevillian to uncover how they're making it in Nashville and provide you with actionable insights from each conversation. And we're your hosts. That was Sarah. I am Tony. We are a husband and wife team that moved to Asheville in May of 2019. Um, we did not have a you know fully drawn out plan as to what we were going to do. So we said, let's start a podcast and interview people who are making it. Um, it was the single goal, like to figure out how others were doing it. And this podcast has been its result. This podcast is powered by our very own marketing business called Making It Creative. We help passionate business owners develop meaningful storytelling and marketing strategies to grow and more effectively convert their audience into customers. You can visit makingitcreative.com to learn more. Perfect. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here today. I, I, to say I'm excited about this episode is um, I'm, I cannot wait to hear what people have to say. This is a slight deviation from what I would say a standard episode has looked or felt like from us. Um, it is not, you know, business, business story, business story, business story. It's more life focused, if that makes sense. Um, but one of the ways that we like to talk about making it creative, our marketing business, is is through the lens of telling better stories to convert customers. In this episode, we talk about telling better stories to create better communities, to live more fully, to engage with your neighbor more powerfully. And um, I just, I, I, I'm going to stretch and say this might be the most meaningful conversation we've had in a, like a very long time. I absolutely loved it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gareth gives some really important lessons on how to be a better human, um, which we've kind of said is also how you can be a better entrepreneur, um, but it really is a lot more of a bigger picture. Some of the key lessons that I really love from this conversation was how Gareth talks about examining your own life, how you can tell better stories about yourself. So what, what narratives are you telling yourself today that maybe aren't helpful? How can they be more helpful? Um, we talk a lot about loneliness, how to overcome that feeling. And the part that is probably most in line with what we're trying to do is how to build a better community right here in Asheville um, as well as in the world. So Gareth is just a a lovely human being and he's full of so many incredible stories and advice for again being a better human being yeah and the way that i would kind of describe it is that um this is someone who has done the work and i mean that um both literally because uh we talk about byron katie in the episode and her process is considered the work um, but someone who has like spent a lot of time in it uh empathetically so he, he he's able to approach some very deep meaningful conversation and very uh deep meaningful topics with a nuance and delicacy that i am very far from and though i aspire to have one day and just to kind of step back quickly gareth higgins right identifies as a storyteller he's a writer he's a public speaker and he is the founder of this um, which you heard slightly about uh this event in Asheville called movies and meaning it's a festival um, on top of that, he is the editor of a magazine called The Porch, which you'll hear about in this episode as well, um, and leads retreats in the U.S. and in Ireland. The The underlying kind of connector through all of those projects, to me, my words are this kind of nonviolence, peacemaking, relationship, and community building um, thread kind of connects all of those. Um, and that's in part because he was you know, born in Northern Ireland during a very difficult and very trying time um, for that country, for those people. And so um, it was honestly a, a privilege to get to sit down and hear his story, hear his takes on what it means to tell powerful and meaningful stories. Um, and it's, it's a conversation that we are so proud to be able to share with you listener so uh, is there anything we want to add before we hop into it no i mean he's irish if you can't guess he has a lovely irish accent oh my goodness um but no let's dive in perfect so uh episode 42 with gareth higgins the uh creator founder of the movies and meaning festival right here in Nashville. direct but yeah so uh where are we in Asheville and and who are you sir so we're, we're on the on the edge of East Asheville moving towards Swannanoa and my name's Gareth Higgins and we're up a hill oh my god and, and I the just looked you might out hear, the window for the first time I've been yeah, so dialed in there's a lot of trees and there's uh someone digging a hole you may be able to hear the thrum <laughs> of the digger as uh, some lovely people are building a house next to us. 
I'm, I'm jealous of them. This is a beautiful piece of country that we have not been to. We really haven't spent much time in East Asheville yet. And so driving out here, uh, I was like, Sarah, we're going to have to do like a little Sunday drive with no end goal other than to see what's going on. This is really beautiful. Yeah, we love living here. It's, you know, it's only 15 minutes from downtown, but sometimes you feel like you're 100 miles away. That's exactly. Wow. Yes. We feel the same way. We said that as we pulled in. I was like, I would not ever, if we had just started five minutes before arriving here, I would assume that we were 45 minutes mm. to an hour from, from Asheville. Easy. It's beautiful. So what, what this is considered just East Asheville. It's, yeah, East Asheville slash Swannanoa. Beautiful. Well, thank you for having us in a room full of books. This is your office. Yeah. And uh, there's a, so based on the internet and based on our intro, <laughs> our audience already knows that there's a lot of work being done. Uh, but what, what, how do you describe the work that you're up to today? You know, it's a good question. I, I think I'm a storyteller, you know, and sometimes that can sound a bit pretentious, but I think all humans are storytellers. We're making meaning out of our lives all the time by telling ourselves a story about it that may or may not be true and may or may not be helpful. But I come from an ethnic tradition of storytelling. I am Irish, and, and, and I really I mean that literally. I, I was born in Ireland. I lived there for the first three and a half decades or so of my life. Um, so I tell stories, and the way I do that is I write, and I lead festivals, and I lead retreats. And all of the writing in the festivals and the retreats are about trying to get conscious about better stories, stories about connection, about creativity and the common good rather than stories about separation and scapegoating and selfishness. And that might sound like a cliche, but I actually think those are good ways of describing the difference between some of the stories that dominate in our society and some of the stories that we all know deep in our gut are more true and better for us. The stories that bring us together the stories that uh, validate your personal experience. Even if you're a quiet person or someone who's not up front, maybe wouldn't identify as special. You know, the spotlight has never shone on you. I truly believe that your place in the community is as valuable as anybody else's. Your gift is really important. And we can't function without everyone being invited to the table to do what they came here to do. Wow. I love that. And I think that um, in many ways resonates with the many interviews that we've done um, and are, will continue to do. Um, I'm wondering, is do you remember a moment maybe as a child or earlier on in your life where you were like, yeah, like I love telling stories mm. or maybe there was a story that you heard and it resonated mm. with you that, that, Helped you take on that identity as a storyteller? Well, you know, my mum is a theatre teacher. Mm. And so I was raised around amateur theatre, watching it, and let's call it important theatre, reading it. Mm. Shakespeare, the obvious starting point there for me, but uh, later the Irish playwright Sean O'Casey, Samuel Beckett, and uh, being introduced to live theater by my mother when I was really young gave way pretty quickly to going to the movies all the time because, frankly, 
going to the movies is cheaper than going to live theater, especially mm -hmm. when you're nine years old, mm -hmm. you know? Um, <clears throat> so do I remember, do I remember a story that I heard that told me I was a storyteller? I, I, you know, I, what's coming to mind is I do remember being so moved by dead poet society by the notion of Robin Williams's character, John Keating, the teacher as a, an inspirational figure who wanted his students to know the most important thing they could do would be to make their lives extraordinary. Now, it doesn't actually, the film itself doesn't connect the concept of extraordinary with a whole lot. And, you know, you could live an extraordinary life and do really terrible things that are mm. out of the ordinary. Um, I, I got lucky because... I was around people as a teenager particularly and then later who were committed to trying to resolve the conflict in Northern Ireland that had been going on in some respects for centuries, but particularly since the late 1960s where two different competing visions of how the society should be run and what was justice uh, were fighting against each other and people were being killed. Yeah. And I fell in among peacemakers I was very fortunate that some people took me under their wing and mentored me. So I suppose this vision that I got from movies that were always really exciting, you know, um, they, they always had this bigger vision of the world. It then got married to what are you doing for the benefit of the common good in your society? And that's not to say I've always done that or I've ever even fully done it. I just never, I was never... <clears throat> I was never taught that what you should do with life is get as much as you can for yourself and keep it. Mm. I just never, that, that was never part of my upbringing. My parents never taught me that. My parents taught me care for your neighbor. And my society had lots of opportunities to do that because it was such a broken society. And movies were this way for me to dream my way into a, an escape mm. from what was difficult about growing up there. Uh, I also consider myself very, very lucky that no teacher of mine ever thought I would be good at rugby uh, because then they never tried to get me to play rugby. And so I had more time to go to the movies, <laughs> which is what was meant to be. Yeah. It was what was meant to be. I think if I had been, I mean, I have the body of a rugby player. I'm kind of built to play rugby. And I think if someone had, had mentored me to play rugby, I would have missed out on a lot of great cinema. Oh, man. Uh <laughs> My mind goes to um, that Italian movie, uh, Cinema Paradiso. Cinema Paradiso. Yeah, I'm the young boy, right? Going into theater and, yeah. and being enamored by Yeah, it's a very cinema. special film. And if you come to the event we're running toward the end of this month, you may or may not see the director's cut of that film. Stop. Um, you may or may not. May I, can't, not. I, can, I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, that's an So there's something yeah. really special about that film in that. A lot of people are, are familiar with it. It came out in 19... Yeah. 88, it's a, it's a film about a little boy growing up in an Italian village and being taken under the wing of the crotchety old projectionist who f at first tells him, get out of my projector booth, and then eventually kind of loves him and Cla teaches him. Classic. It's, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's about the power of stories and movies mm -hmm. and like love in a small town and what happens to you when you leave your small town because you can't wait to get out and then you get to the big city and realize, I can't wait to be back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and holding those two things... Uh, constant. A lot of people have seen that movie, 
there's a really special thing in that uh, the cut that most people have seen is about 50 minutes shorter than the director's cut. Director's cuts of movies are often, you know, five, ten minutes longer or a little tweak here or there. The, the director's cut of Cinema Paradiso it has a completely extra subplot within the story and um, we are we're planning to screen it soon so can i uh, wow okay so uh it's literally we have like three dvds in our apartment we're, and like a 20 something <laughs> they're inch all screen italian. and they're only oh, they they're italian, only italian right, movies right, right. What, um what and, have you got uh so we have chinima paradiso and then we have like a piff movie uh la uh, mafia uccide solo durante wow. l'estate so mafia the, kills only in the summer only in the summer yeah uh, and so pit- you know, you know when not to go to Sicily then. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's a it's a it's Naples based, and he is this incredible. So I had I, he meant nothing to me. Sarah moved to New York. Uh, we had done a bunch of like restaurant dates, and then she said like, "Hey, there's this there's this Italian movie that's playing. I uh, I just heard about it. Uh, would you be interested in going?" And I was like, "Obviously, that sounds awesome. Sure." <laughs> What whatever, and so it turns out that it's at Lincoln Center, and it's the mm. U.S. premiere mm. Mm. of this guy Piff, who is like a Woody Allen type mm. a- actor, director, writer of these Italian comedy films that are also dramas. Yes, the first was this uh, the the Mafia Only Kills in the Summer. This one is called uh, In War for Love, mm. and uh, both were absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have those, but. Uh, he also like showed up at the end of the movie and they did a interview. Did a Q and A, and so we're, like, talk about underselling the event. Just, like, there's <laughs> this Italian movie that's playing, well, you know, but nobody knows him. I mean, people yeah. know him in New York a little bit, but nobody really knows him here, let alone in Italy. Like, they don't they don't really know oh, him that well. well these these nice movies day. are fantastic. Yeah, I think that nice if they're not on your radar, I think you'd appreciate All them right, for the for the power of stories. It's it's the idea. It's not unlike. Uh, uh, Cinema Paradiso, where it's it's the story that you tell, and the in the in the uh, Mafia Only Kills in the Summer movie, the, it's the stories that a father tells to a son to have him not be worried about this idea of the mafia. It's winter time, so like, don't worry, the mafia only kills right. in the summer. And then it's all of these lies and a adult man trying to make sense of them as he has a son. Uh, and trying to t- like honor the stories he was told and the truths and all of these, it I think it might hit uh, a special place. It's a fantastic film. Um, so, okay, so the movie Cinema Paradiso, Cinema Paradiso. I've always felt that there wasn't a lot told about the present day character. Is perhaps yeah, that's, if you've seen that's the that's the that's what's missed. That's what's in the director's cut. Sarah. Okay, great. We'll link to the <laughs> festival where this may or may not be playing at, at the end of the month. Oh, my goodness, where you may or may not see us right. crying, watching. <laughs> that score, the score, oh, too. Yeah. Yeah. Music has yeah. such an important role in mm-hmm. film for me. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Sorry <laughs> we, to we make this have about... We could have a whole podcast yeah, episode about that. <laughs> so. But, so we uncovered a little bit, okay, of the story, how you came to be a storyteller, perhaps. But what about how did you get to Asheville? Well, places. my my husband got a job here, mm-hmm. and uh, it was very serendipitous. And we've loved living here for the last eight years or so. He's he's from this neck of the woods anyway, and uh, so that's that's how I got here. 
And so then if it was uh, eight years ago, what have you been up to for these eight years? Is it the same? <laughs> you know, like it, it seems like there's a lot of hats being worn based on your website um, and the internet at large. But like what kind of hats uh, for the last eight years have you been wearing? Well, you know, one of my best friends lives in New Zealand and his answer to that question, what do you, what do, you do, is sometimes I take my dog for a walk on the beach and the rest of the time is about figuring out who I am who I am and so it's not so much a matter of hats I have one hat okay. that has I don't know different tassels on the <laughs> on, <laughs> on the hat that. <laughs> so what I what I give my time to is I edit a magazine that we co-founded that's about telling these kinds of stories we do a monthly storytelling night in Asheville called 531 we have oh. five stories and three songs from a local musician one community we do that at the block off Biltmore on the second Monday of every month. And we do these festivals, one of them in in, uh, in Asheville, the Movies and Meaning Festival, another one I do in in Texas. Uh, and then the retreats that we run, some of them are here around the country also, and in Ireland. And the point is all about, can we gather people, ask each other, what's the story you're telling yourself? And then just work with that. Yeah, Is it true? Is there a truer version of that story? Um, is if it's true, is it the most helpful way to tell the the story? And you're looking animated. I am as so I say animated. This, so. so this is it's you're you're triggering some work that I've done uh, on myself. One is Byron Katie. Does sure, she mean anything yeah, I'm, to? I'm very familiar with. Byron so like Katie's that work. that idea is it true? Yeah, yeah. revolutionary sure. for me. Yeah, is it, it often isn't. It often it's often o- the, the, almost the, never. It's the, never true. Yeah, maybe the, one of the deepest beliefs I carry about myself isn't true and I, and I mean what 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 Byron Katie is doing is a, is kind of deep psychological mm-hmm. spiritual work that I think is very valuable and anybody listening who doesn't know about her I encourage you to go to the work.com and look at her videos of being in dialogue with people this this is this is about liberating ourselves from beliefs that harm us mm-hmm. the question I'm asking about is it true it's slightly different and that's to do with let me let me give you an example mm-hmm. um so there's there's pretty good evidence that currently about 700 million people on the planet are living in extreme poverty. And if I just tell you that statement, just make that statement as it stands, 700 million people on the planet living in extreme poverty, that's an astonishing figure. I can't even begin to conceive of what 700 million people looks like. It's, it's more than twice the population of the United States. I've met some people living in mild poverty, and that's hard enough. And I have never lived in any form of poverty. It's never been my experience. And if all I tell you is that there's 700 million people living in extreme poverty, you might be likely to respond with, the enormity of the task is just so great, I don't even know where to begin. Hmm. And in the worst scenarios, you might be, let's call it, you know, browbeaten by the heaviness of that into despair or apathy. There's nothing we can do. But if I extend the story and tell you that uh, 200 years ago, 90% of the global population was living in extreme poverty, and 700 million is about 10% of the current global population, then you start to see over two centuries, we've gone from 90% to 
to 10%. And so it's a different story now. You could begin by saying there's been nearly a 90% reduction in extreme poverty worldwide in the last two centuries. However, if I started by telling you that, to tell you the good news story of this enormous reduction, you run the risk of a different problem, which is apathy of a different kind, passivity of a different kind. Wow, things are so amazing. They're just going to keep getting better. There's no need for us to do anything, which the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker quotes somebody saying, that's like walking into a laundry room if you didn't know how to do laundry and you saw that there was a pile of laundry on the floor that needs to be done. And then you went away and came back two hours later and discovered the laundry was now clean and had been nicely folded on top of the washing machine. You would not say, oh my goodness, that laundry must have done itself. If you didn't know how to do laundry, what you might say is, oh, that's interesting. That laundry seems to have been done. I wonder how it got done. And then maybe you could find someone who knows how to do laundry and say, could you tell me how that laundry got done? And they could tell you. And then over time, you could get more complex into, I find sometimes when I do laundry this way, my legs itch afterwards. And someone explains to you that's because you're using a detergent that isn't hypoallergenic and you figure out what an allergy is and so on and so forth. And you go down that road. We would never, ever look at laundry that had been done and say, this laundry has magically done itself. Nor should we say extreme poverty has magically reduced by nearly 90% in 200 years. We have history books and economists and activists who we can read and learn from about why that happened and then could ask, are there things we could learn from that and do some similar things? No. So you hold both parts of the story at the same time. One being amazing things have happened. Another being terrible things are still happening. The next being, could we do some of the same things that were done over the past two centuries that could help the people who are living in these difficult circumstances now? And if I am not one of the 700 million people living in extreme poverty, and if I'm listening to this podcast, I'm almost certainly not living in extreme poverty because I have access to the equipment to listen to a podcast. The only question that's ethical, the most important one that's relevant is, what am I going to do with the resources I have to help make this situation better for other people who don't have those resources? And that's what I mean by asking the question, is it true? So, yeah, it's true that there's 700 million people living in extreme poverty. Is that the most helpful way to tell the story? No. you got to provide the context. Flip it. Is it true that 200 years ago, 90% of the global population was living in extreme poverty it seems to be and there's been this massive reduction is that the most helpful way to tell the story no because that will breed inaction so um, that's kind of a complicated way of explaining this I hope it makes I think it does make sense I think all of us are holding on to a story that either isn't true at all or is true but it's only one small moment of the story and it keeps us stuck. I mean, that's how trauma works. The playback loop. Something that happened to me when I was eight. I mean, there is something that happened to me when I was 10 years old that terrified me for about 20 years thereafter. And through good community support and, and trauma therapy, I was able to get to a point where I could tell the story differently. And a lot of the time, that's about helping people move from a con a what you could call a victim consciousness, where... All I am is the target of that terrible thing. 
and I can't see any way out because what's happening to me is the 10-year-old inside me is, is stuck there and has never been treated with compassion or intelligence. You know, the knowledge that we have now about help, to help people, assist people with trauma. But I think our whole culture is traumatized. I think our politics is traumatized. I think the way we talk about reality is traumatized. So hopefully, because of the gifts I've received from other people who've helped me along the way, asking this question about how can we tell the truest version of the story available to us in the most helpful way can help us take a step beyond being stuck. Here's to that. Amen. Dang. I'm wondering, on that same line of thought, so one of the things I've always struggled with is, okay, we have this personality, um, and I've taken, you know, Enneagram tests and the Myers-Briggs uh-huh. tests and all these personality tests that says this is, you know, your natural state of being. Uh-huh. And many of them c- can be very helpful because they also tell you like, you know, okay, if you're this, like these are things that you can sort of recognize in yourself and how to overcome that. But how do you think about those types of personality tests that in some ways put people in boxes mm. perhaps or, or could seem to be and... This, the narrative that you just said, which is, is it true? How, what's the most helpful story that you can yeah. tell about yourself? Well, those things like the Enneagram, they're tools, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I suppose like any tool, like a hammer, can be helpful if you've got some nails to knock into a wall, mm-hmm. but it can also be harmful if you drop it on somebody's head, you know? <laughs> and, um, and sometimes you, you don't need a hammer. You need a different kind of tool to achieve the end you're looking for. So... I would encourage people, if they're looking into things like any, any Enneagram and so on, find mature teachers. And there are some really mature teachers uh, out there. In fact, I mean, this was not rehearsed, but one of them is coming to the Movies and Meaning <laughs> Festival, <laughs> Mickey Scott Bay Jones. Um, so, you know, uh, f- you, letting them, using them as tools rather than having them use you and recognizing, sure, the Enneagram says there's nine types, there are 7 billion people on the planet. Um, I, I might want to suggest that there are nine types and there are also 7 billion types. Mm. And uh, there's nothing wrong with you if you think you don't fully fit within one type or another. I think a far more important question to ask is this question about resources and power. What resources and power do you have in the world? Whether you believe you earned it or not, I don't care if you think you earned it or not, I care about what you're doing with it. And the flip side of the resources and the power that any one of us has is the lack, the challenge, the gap, the emptiness, the struggle. And the question we've got to ask about that is who are the safe people to ask for help? And safe doesn't mean antiseptic, right? Uh, safe means someone who's not going to harm you in response to your request or shame you in response to your request. And this is really how human beings are supposed to... Like, if, if human beings related to each other this way, we'd have a totally functional society, right? If, 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 you, if the first time we met, you said to me, hi there, here's what I've got and here's what I need, and I could say, wow, I have some of the things you need, and I can also help you find someone else who has some of the things you need, and some of the things you've got, I need them too. This is what's going on in the back of all our minds all the time. Our culture has repressed it so much that it's buried underneath 
well, it's both our culture and, and ev- evolution hasn't caught up with the necessity of interacting with each other peaceably. Our amygdala, the, the fear receptors in our brains, still think that there are saber-toothed tigers waiting around every corner <laughs> to come and get us. And so, you know, we're, we're like biologically programmed to be def- def- what I call defensive hyphen aggressive, like de- yeah, de- de- defensive aggression. Um, say again? I would say the default energy is uh, this person's trying to hurt me, and so I'm going to preempt with some sort of attack. That's right. That's right. I got to protect myself. And I mean, there's deeper questions there, but you know, let's let's get into defining what is the self that I'm trying to protect. Mm. There's deep spiritual wisdom across the world that suggests the stuff that's real about you can't be harmed under any circumstances anyway, even if they kill you. <laughs> and that, as the oracle in the Matrix would say, that'll really bake your noodle if you think about it long enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's there you know there is the question of how to get through a day, but I and and I feel like one of the things we're trying to cope with in our current moment is the bombardment of information, propaganda, wisdom, and abuse that uh, electronic media makes almost inevitable in our life in our lives. You have to train your brain to discern the difference between information, propaganda, wisdom, and abuse. And social media doesn't make that easy. Now, now I'm not one of the, these people who's kind of anti-technology. It's Again, it's back to being a tool. A hammer can be used to put some nails in a wall or drop on somebody's head. Um, what are we doing with the tool? What is it? Le- is it leading to more life, more connection? Is it leading to more anxiety? less health um does it help us care for our neighborhoods you know you know we live on a street there's 15 houses here and a few years ago we we came to to believe we really needed to get to know the neighbors who live on this street because i was complaining all the time about how nobody knows their neighbors anymore and realizing i don't know my neighbors either and and we took some steps toward getting to know our neighbors and i'm happy to say we know the names of almost everybody who lives on this street and we invite everybody over once a year for a cup of coffee. You don't have to be living in each other's houses in order to be good uh, neighbours. And um, I, I want to encourage people, if you don't know any of your neighbours at all, try knocking on the doors of the three residences to your left and the three residences to your right. And have a plan in mind to invite those folk in for a cup of coffee. It does not have to be extravagant. Have a, have a plan in mind and do that cup of coffee at 10.30 on a Saturday morning. Don't make it dinner the yeah. first time. Um, that's too much pressure. I, I love that. And you may discover when you have a cup of coffee that you don't want to have dinner together. <laughs> or they may discover they don't want to have dinner with you. Yeah. But you at least know each other. Yeah. Um, and it knits it, it it does begin to reduce the tension that exists in our society and I don't just mean tension between red and blue politically there's something about urban living that increases people's suspicion of each other you know now I'm a sociologist by training I don't want to lionize rural living either it's not like rural life is paradise and urban living is hell Every side, every place has a shadow side. I mean, and and you could say that the shadow side of rural living is there could be like fear of outsiders. Urban living, it's fear of everybody, right? Um, 
But we all have, I think it's innate, an innate need for connection with other humans. And I think we have an innate need for a sense of purpose and meaning that includes not just what we believe about the world and the pleasures we get from watching a movie or reading a book or um, hearing a politician that pushes our buttons in the right way. There's an innate need to give something to the world, some form of service. And there's, to my mind, there is no pleasure comparable with the pleasure of doing something good for others for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I, I am not Gandhi, right? I am not Mother Teresa. I am, these are theories that I dabble in <laughs> yeah. and I discover, wow, you know, when we went and washed people's cars for the day, it was fun, yeah. it was beautiful, and it helped people. Yeah, and I, I'm pro being of service for um, self-centered need like for just the endorphins i'm okay with you going to the soup kitchen because it makes you, you feel, feel good, good. Sure. i'm good with that sure. like i i i think that that is absolutely admirable that you want to scratch that itch in that way um there's something i heard recently uh and i wonder because you you're kind of moving towards it and then away and then back the idea that uh in not all cases but in some cases a sense of loneliness and depression mm-hmm. is the ego's obsession with I mm-hmm. as and and a way to break out of a rut like that is to start being of service in any way possible. And it speaks to that higher purpose, that calling that you said, which is to to do something that makes a difference to those around us. Yeah, and I, you know, I wanna there's a way to talk about this that can that can hurt people more, right. uh, and that is, you know, if you're if you're deeply in a depressive funk, it can be really difficult to even imagine getting out of bed in the morning. And I've been there, I've 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 been there for extended periods in my life. And there's a step in between that and the getting out of bed and then going and connecting with people and being of service. But once you're able to take that step, and sometimes it requires, like in my case, one time, I'll tell you a story. I, I, um, I remember back in Belfast 20 years ago, being so depressed and, and am I rope depressed, uh, on a Saturday night and saying to one of my friends who was over for dinner, I just don't know what to do. Um, and I didn't even know the word depression. You know, I didn't even, I was so stuck in it. I didn't understand what was happening to me. And now I actually know that part of what was going on was was a trauma uh, experience. And my friend, whose name is Trevor, uh, he said to me, okay, you don't know what to do. And he'd seen me go through this for months. And he's like, let's try an experiment. Um, uh, I'm going to tell you what you need to do and your part of the bargain is you have to do it. And you have to say, yes, you're going to do it before you know what it is. <laughs> now, obviously, I would have had the agency to decline after he told me what it was. But I, I was in such a low point. I would have done anything healthy at the time. And he said, okay. It's about 6 o'clock on a Saturday night. He said, go and have a cold shower right now for five minutes. 
So, okay, I went and had a cold shower right now for five minutes. And then I, you know, got dressed and came back out. What do I do next? He says, come to church with me tomorrow morning. And this was not about religion. It was about community. It was about getting out of the house, going to a place where there were other kind people doing kind things. And after church, I said to him, okay, what do I do now? And he said, go for a walk with me this afternoon. And that was about getting my body moving. And I hadn't been for a walk in a long time. Uh, those were three things. Cold shower, come to church, go for a walk, all done within 24 hours. And the depression lifted for six months. And, you know, and I didn't, I didn't know how to get treatment. And that's why, partly why it came back. I think what was happening was a little more poetic than that. I think what was happening was a friend of mine was truly showing me that they cared mm-hmm. and they were willing to, to risk embarrassing themselves by doing so. I mean, it's crazy telling me to go and have a cold shower for five minutes. It had an effect on my body. And now some of the things we know about um, somatic realities and um, particularly the field of sensory motor psychotherapy uh, says, oh, there was actually something neuroscientific happening yeah. there. You wouldn't want to stay in a cold shower too long because it'll freeze you. And you don't want to have a scalding hot shower because it'll burn you. Um, it woke me up. It kind of it knocked me out of my... It pulls you back into your body. Exactly. And I didn't know. I didn't have the language for that at the time. Yeah. I just felt cared for yeah. at the end of my rope. Heavy. And um, so I can't remember how we got on to that. So, oh, it's more to do with like, you know... I don't know that that would have. I don't know that I would have got out of that funk if it hadn't been for Trevor. Right. And so we all kind of need a Trevor around. And often, my job is to be the Trevor. And your point was about, you know, being of service to other people does actually positively affect your own soul. I've been writing a book about fear, and in the chapter on the fear of being alone, I was trying to wrestle with what what's the antidote to the fear of being alone. And I felt alone a lot in my younger years, always on the outside of things, always the last person chosen for the team. Although when I tell that story to groups, everybody else says they were always the last person chosen for the team, and it couldn't have been true for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe just only people who were the last person chosen for the team come to my events, (laughs) and that's great. They're all welcome. They were excluded for long enough. Um, uh, And if you were the person that did the choosing... You're also welcome at our events, too, and we'll forgive you. Uh, um, and as I was on the outside, I realized the antidote to the fear of being alone is to become your own best friend. If you think about the most popular people you know, the people who are popular not because they're sexy or famous, right? people who are popular for deeper reasons, they are the people who like themselves the most in a healthy way, mm. not in an egocentric way. But people who are just deeply comfortable with themselves. Because one of the manifestations of that is someone who's deeply comfortable with themselves tends to be more interested in you, Mm -hmm. right? Because they don't need to be broadcasting their achievements. And they genuinely are interested. How are you doing? What's going on? They, the, the, you know, there's got to be someone in your life who calls you up and remembers something that was happening to you months and months ago and checks in with you about that. Isn't that so lovely when that happens? Because you thought they'd forgotten. You had maybe even forgotten yourself. And the warmth of someone caring enough to remember about this thing that might have been big, might have been little, but was still real. That comes, that's more likely to come from someone 
who is so in touch with their own goodness and their own lack of need to be perfect. So if you're alone, start befriending the person you see in the mirror. And if you look in the mirror and you don't immediately see something that you think is worth loving, first of all, I don't buy it. I understand that you may feel that way. Here, here. But start, start with the part that you can love. I bet you can find something, just something, where you, some, some incident in your life where you didn't completely mess up, right? Um, start loving that person. And I have seen this happen. This weird miracle takes place that as you start to like yourself, tell yourself that you like yourself, even if you don't like yourself, because to tell yourself you like yourself implies that you do think you're worth liking, even if you don't like yourself yet. Once you start doing that, um, people will mysteriously start showing up in your life and befriending you. And it's because you're a person they enjoy being around. I, I, I love that. And I completely agree. I, it, I once uh, was asked to speak at a high school senior graduation uh-huh. on the concept of like what what advice, sage wisdom can I impart <laughs> to these uh, young adults on their way into college, and 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 so I tried to unpack what I consider to be three of the primary things that they might be thinking of. One is oh too below. Was that a leaf? Nothing obvious. Sometimes it can be her reflection. Let's let her right here for a minute. It's all right. The the sun just changed uh, dressing. I think we'll be okay. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. We should be fine. Are you gonna? What are you gonna do? You disagree with what was being said? You can't talk to high school seniors. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's gonna be fine. And 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 one of the things I focused on was the idea of like finding that a uh, romantic connection, right? People are thinking about that. Yeah. You know, hormones are blasting at eighteen years old. And I said, uh, if I could give you a single bit of advice, it's it's try and be someone that you yourself like. And I f- I heard you saying the things that I was trying to find words for, which is be interested be uh have interests do things because they give you life and then when if that situation arises people want to talk to you mm-hmm. or ha- or have an opportunity to talk to you you can show a deep curiosity mm-hmm. in, a, in a trade a craft a art form film and if people are on your level they're going to either love that about you and not know anything about movies but love that you love movies um, and so it's just be someone, I think that's a beautiful point and dang if we could all hear that as well, early and, as possible. And it's a daily journey, you know, it like, is. like it's, it's not, it doesn't happen overnight and it really is okay to go find a Trevor and say, I don't know what to do, but choose your Trevors wisely. Yeah. That's, that's part of, part of the issue is, um, sometimes we ask the wrong people for advice. People who may not be ready to give you or may not have done the, the kind work. of journey yeah. that... Um, so choose someone who's obviously a bit further down the road 
than you are. Yeah. And one of the points that came up earlier, I'm always constantly trying to find like the, the parallel in perhaps business sense, but you, you mentioned how, uh, with neighbors, you don't invite them to dinner. Not the first time. Not the first time. Right. And that was the same thing. Like I used to give that advice on uh, in dating as well. No, like it's not good that the first date is drinks, dinner, and, and like another thing, because that's a huge commitment. No Uh one knows what they're getting into. Uh It could be terrible. Everyone's going to hate it. Start with the smallest possible ask and make it very explicit. We have a thing at 12, but we'd love you to come over at 1030. So they know at the very <laughs> most they're in for 90 minutes, That's but it right. can be shorter. Right. Coffee doesn't take 90 minutes yeah. to drink. And it, I mean, it's mutual pressure that you want to, to release. Exactly. There. And, and if it goes really well, you can say, well, you want to, we'll do this again. Yeah. We'll do this again. And I, I'm, I, I bring that up again because of the idea of the ask of a Trevor who might not be full-time Sherpa and spiritual leader, <laughs> right? You don't say, hey, like, I I need you to be on the phone with me for two hours every night. That's, I'm in this deep place. Like, the ask is small, and it's, and right. it's, and it's uh, clear, and there are expectations that have been communicated That's explicitly, right. uh, at least to start. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On the first date, on the first version of that. Yeah. Dang, we need Trevor's. Well, like all I can think about is you saying yes to do this podcast with us for more than ninety minutes <laughs> was a really big yes, and a really a huge big yes. ask. Yeah, it was. So thank I you. I really like talking. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, he's not I'm a. Sorry, it, I mean I'd you are oh, a writer. I'd forgotten, I'd you forgotten are a writer. the two of you were in the room. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> you, you are a writer, but you're a storyteller. I was like, this is wheelhouse stuff. This is going to be perfect. Um, thank you for all, all of that, and I. I Oh my goodness. I hope uh if someone is listening and that spoke deeply to them, please reach out to us, reach out um to Gareth if that's okay uh, sure. via the links and but uh talk to people. Yeah, absolutely. Talk and I them. I mean I have a suggestion around this is really practical and and um that emerged in our lives a few years ago. Uh I had this this notion. We have, do we have time for me to say a of few course. more things? Yeah, okay, yeah. Good. We have um, plenty of time. So, um you know, People say what humans need to survive is food, water, air, and shelter, right? Yeah, that hierarchy. We're always talking about... Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. Um, and uh, cool, food, water, air, and shelter. That makes sense to me. Now, shelter, whether you define it as four walls and a roof or you live in a place where you might not have four walls or you might not have a roof, it's usually talking about physical shelter from the elements. Mm-hmm. That's usually what that shelter means. I don't think that goes far enough. I think there are three other elements to shelter that um, we can we can actually work with to bring more into our lives. The first is I do think all of us need a close circle of friends. I think that um, that's at least three people, me, you, and someone else. I think once you get beyond about eight people, it becomes unwieldy. You can be friends with as many people as you like, but to have a circle that's consistent, about eight people is the maximum that you can really make that work with. Maybe some people can do it with 12, but uh, between three and eight. And the reason for three instead of two is two people is a friendship, three is a circle. And I heard Warren Beatty say once that the reason why he likes to collaborate with at least two other people is that two, if it's a duo, one person will always dominate. 
may not be the same person each time, but you, you don't have anyone there to help resolve the conflict. Whereas if you've got three of you, someone can always give perspective whenever two of you are fighting, yeah. you know? Um, so I think, a, I think a circle of at least three people is, is one of the three elements of shelter. The second element is this thing about purpose and meaning, and that's finding out what it is you're here to do that serves the common good. Now, it's, it's, it's usually... You want to say something? No, I have, I have a question, and I'm yeah. sorry because I know that you were going into it, but uh, that sounds super heavy. <laughs> and if someone is really far from finding their purpose that serves that yeah. common good, yeah. Uh, and I, please continue with the three things. Yeah. But I would love to try and unpack. Come back what to, are, to what are like? How do we unheavy that? How do we how, like? What are version one of that? Sorry. Sure. Okay. Well, we're all we're all amateurs. Yes. We're all novices in this. So there's good there's good news on 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 that. So so what I was going to say about purpose and meaning is it usually has something to do with your greatest wound. In your life, because we're spending our lives, you know, most of us are spending our lives just repeating the wound. Mm. We're either we're either picking at the at the scab and not allowing it to become a scar. A dear friend of mine, Nadia Bols Weber, talks about: Are you living from your wound or are you living from your scars? And they're two different. The, the wound is the idea that it hasn't actually healed yet, um, and that's what therapy and community and lovers and healers are for. You know. It's not what blogging is for. <laughs> Do people still blog? It's not what social media is for. Um, publish. It, 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 there's an invitation to publish your scar. I, I, I would discourage people from publishing their wounds. There's more work to be done before it's safe for them to do that. Otherwise, they run the risk of being re-wounded. Um, and part of the good news about wounds, similar to the fear of being lonely or being alone, like often if you do enough work and you uncover a sense of purpose, it's usually got something to do with healing in the world, the painful thing that was done to you. Yeah. You know, and again, there's 7 billion wounded people walking the planet, but there's really only a handful of wounds, right? And, and part of the beauty of that is we'll always be able to find other people who've suffered more than we have or in a similar way. Yeah. And we'll be able to find people who've recovered more than we have and can lay some breadcrumbs on the trail to help us find our way to integrating the wound. Um, to go back to what I was saying, I think a lot of us are just picking at the scabs or we are inverting it and we may actually be doing to other people the thing that was done to us. You know, if we were, if we felt isolated and judged as children, we might be really good at isolating and judging other people. Of course, we have the possibility we might be the most empathetic, compassionate friend in the world because we understood what it was like to not be treated with compassion. It takes consciousness to do that. One of the things I loved about Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers recently was Mr. Rogers is easy to write off because he's nice. He's easy to ignore because he's nice. When you actually look at that man's life and see what he did, it was more than nice. He was brilliant and he was radical and he cared deeply about humane connection. And there's stuff, you know, there's anti-racist stuff he was doing in the 60s um, that he was just modeling for people without trumpeting it. There's a moment in that film where it became very clear, sure, it does seem to me that Fred Rogers had some natural kindness abilities that were given to him, so he can't take any credit for them, right? We can't actually give him any prizes for just being naturally kind. 
And I don't have to feel bad if I'm less naturally kind than Mr. Rogers. I may actually deserve more credit because I have to work harder to be kind than he did. And I think he'd be the first to admit that. More importantly is there's a moment in the film where it's clear he is making a decision to be kind. He is, you can see anger flash briefly across his face, but he chooses not to give in to the anger. He breathes, pauses, and he actually thanks the person speaking to him for making him think more deeply about uh, his life. Um, Whatever your wound is, I've not yet met anyone who doesn't have the possibility with the right help of turning their wound into the place that they serve the world and healing themselves by doing that. Now, there are many people who have suffered in monumentally grievous ways. And maybe what we need to do with those folk, first of all, is to just give them as much space and care and attention as they need, maybe for years. Maybe for years. There are some forms of suffering that are unimaginably great. And yet, the paradox is, some of the people I know in Northern Ireland who suffered the most were the pioneers of peace building and conflict resolution there. Now, I don't know how that works. There's some people who've just been, I'm not going to say destroyed, nearly destroyed by the pain they've experienced and they just deserve a rest Mm -hmm. and care and attention until they're ready to do what comes next. But there does seem to be a paradox that some of the people who've suffered the most have also been the bravest in transforming that into a, a, yeah. a kind of a healing thing. And then the third thing, in addition to a close circle, a sense of purpose, the third thing is I really think we all need at least one or two mentors who are further down the road, who can speak into our lives, give us feedback, encourage us, affirm us, call us out when we're believing our own propaganda be a shoulder to cry on. Give us a swift, nonviolent kick to the ass <laughs> when it's time for us to get moving again. Or maybe just a sofa to sleep on on a night when we need to get away. Those three things, if you marry that last one in partnership with, I think all of us eventually need to be mentoring other people. It's a two-way relationship. I'm receiving mentoring from others and then I'm passing it on to other folks as well. Not the same as control, certainly not coercion, um, but relational sharing of experience. Now, maybe I've made it sound more heavy. Um, if you want me to speak to how do you unheavy the purpose question, I'll speak to how to unheavy the purpose question. Yeah, I think that that would be impactful because I one of the things we hear sometimes and i think i give a lot of light to whether or not it's actually that bright is the idea that um entrepreneurs let's say who are working to solve their life's work and they found their passion uh that concept just existing holds some people back from beginning work which could become their life's work or uh, their life's passion. You got to know what your life's passion what is, is before you take step number how, one. How can you know what yeah. the co- what yeah. your unique really skill nice. is for the greater good? Yeah, yeah. You should ask other people who know you. Mm. That's 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 one really important step. 
um, we, ha- we have this thing um, that we call Porch Circles. Our magazine is called The Porch. The idea is a place where you can sit with wiser people who can uh, advise you, but also just relax on a sunny day in a hammock. And um, The Porch Circles, which you can find on the theporchmagazine.com uh, under Community Circles, I think is the, the menu item. It's a suggestion that if you want to find this shelter, these three forms of shelter, pick two other people who you feel comfortable with. And don't start with dinner. (laughs) Start with coffee. And when you meet, ask four questions. The first question is, what's good? Now, this comes from an ancient spiritual exercise called the Ignatian spiritual exercises. And St. Ignatius of Loyola, who I think was in the 12th century, and church historians and medievalists out there who are all raging in this moment because I just misdated (laughs) St. Ignatius, I apologize. I would ask you just what would Ignatius do? I think he would forgive me. Um, Blame it it on my head, not my heart. (laughs) That's that's a nice one. That's a nice one. So... Um, the Ignatian spiritual exercises, the first question is beautiful. It's what are the sources of consolation in your life right now? I just abbreviate that to what's good mm. or what's giving you life. Yeah. The second question, what's bad <laughs> or what's not giving you life? The Ignatian version is what are the sources of desolation in your life right now? Um, the third question how is your sense of purpose or meaning or to use religious language, vocation or calling? How is that showing up in your life? What are you feeling called to do that helps the world and is good for you? Uh, and how is it showing up? Now, if you do that in a circle with two other people, at least two other people who are getting to know you, over time it will become clear to you what your real sense of purpose or mission in life is. Couple of caveats. It's not about personal gain. It's not about selfish ambition. And it's not about ego. And at the same time, it is not entirely not about all of those. Some of it is personal. There is a personal gain when you feel good (laughs) on the inside. Um, There is uh, an ambition to spread joy. That's an ambition. You know, and the ego piece, my ego feels healthy and good and warm when I'm doing the thing that I'm led uh, uh, to do. Um, Lots of us are doing stuff that we are not called to do. I had a friend in Belfast. I had not seen him for a while. He was an older man. He was kind of, he was a different, he was a different brand. He he was, let's say, politically and theologically quite different to me. And I had drifted away from the same sort of community that he was a part of. And so I felt we were very different. One day, I'm sitting in an airport departure lounge, and I saw him walking toward me. And I thought, oh, no, I really don't want to talk to this person. <laughs> because I think he's going to try and he'll either, like, admonish me for wandering off the path, or he's going to try and persuade me to come back, or it's going to be somehow awkward and embarrassing. And um, But he comes up to me, and, like... It was such a beautiful lesson for me. I was like bracing myself for the judgment. At the time, I was presenting BBC radio programs and and he comes up to me and goes, Gareth, 
I tell all my friends when I hear you on the radio, I used to know him. <laughs> and so and immediately I start to melt because it's good. He's he's yeah. he's he's what do you call it? Massaging my ego. I like that. I'm I'm entirely imperfect. Please massage my <laughs> ego more. And um but I still felt somewhat awkward and I and I I made the conversation end quickly. Yeah. So I didn't have to spend more time with him. Then they call the, the flight. I get on the plane and he's in the seat next to me. And as the flight takes off, this is not an exaggeration. He says to me, can I show you the most important thing in the world to me? And I thought, okay. And yeah, he takes out a big old leather bound Bible. And I thought, oh no, here we go. And I still identify as a Christian and I'm still a part of the Jesus movement. I'm just in a different place to him. Yeah. So he takes out his big leather bound Bible and he starts to open it. And I think he's going to read me a passage from scripture and try to convert me on the plane. But no, inside the Bible is a photograph of his new granddaughter. And he shows me the photograph of his granddaughter and tells me her name and says, I've never been as happy in my life as I am now being a grandfather. And I realized the system that I was a part of with him tended to ascribe dignity and respect and a spotlight to men, almost exclusively men, who had a kind of an authoritative personality, who would stand up on a stage on a Sunday morning and tell it like it is. That was kind of the peak of the pyramid. A man who could tell it like it is. And it would... if. Even better if he was successful in business. Now, success, and successful in business meant he was bringing in decent money. It didn't mean anything about what he was doing with his business, what he was making with his business, or how he treated his employees. <laughs> that wasn't in the frame of reference. It was just was he a, you know a solid alpha male, you know. And he was telling me he'd never been as happy as when he went to this other part of his soul, grandfatherliness. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be amazing if that community learned to ascribe dignity and respect and a spotlight to the beautiful grandfathers, you know, among one of many different types of people and the grandmothers yeah. and the everybody else is doing their thing that brought more life. And wouldn't it be better if instead of putting him on a stage where he's going to shout at us on a Sunday morning, let him run the grandfather's club. Let him say to the men who are becoming grandfathers, many of whom are feeling like their lives are over, many of whom are feeling like they don't, they don't, they've now retired. What am I going to do with my life? I'm not valuable anymore. Couldn't we turn grandfatherhood into the most exciting thing for those guys? You only do that if you're in conversation with people uh, who are on a path toward emotional and spiritual maturity and when people gather in groups of between three and eight and they ask those three questions what's good what's bad how's my purpose showing up it presents itself over time and then the last of the four questions that we ask when we gather in these circles and you don't need we know i don't need to be there when these circles happen no but that's part of the beauty of this you don't need to be an expert in anything other than your own questions not your own answers it's just what's going on inside you the fourth question it's a really radical question, and it's a question that almost no one ever asks. And it's, having heard what we've heard, 
Is there anybody here that wants to ask for something? Or is there anybody here that wants to offer something by way of help to anybody else in the circle? It can be as simple as, I need a babysitter on Thursday night, and I can't afford it. Can someone here, maybe who's not a parent, can someone do that? It can be as profound as happened in our circle. Um, someone in our circle, one of their closest friends, died without warning, completely suddenly, one day. And for quite some time, this member in our circle really needed to be helped with his grief. And just to say, for weeks, you know, I keep feeling it, I keep missing him, I keep feeling it. I just needed to be kind of tenderly cared for in his grief. There was a woman in our circle who had a really high-paying job that was deadening her soul. She really didn't like the job, but the money was good. She needed help to have the courage to quit the job. And she asked us, can you help me do I know I, I know I want I know I should do this, but I don't want to. <laughs> we helped her do it. And then a few months later, when she was offered three new jobs, two of which were variations of the same bad, high-paying job, we helped her not give in and take that job. And she took a lower-paying job that she's been much happier in. Sometimes it's really existentially rich and metaphysical like i don't know if i believe in god anymore and i'd i need someone to go for a walk with me every saturday for the rest of my life <laughs> to help me work this through to which of course we'd say how about every saturday for the next six weeks <laughs> <laughs> let's commit to that yeah. and and see and see what happens yeah or if you really want to upset the accepted order and the way oppressive structures in this society can really hurt people how about I can't afford to pay my rent. I would really like this circle to help me do this. And it's not a loan. It's a gift. And I'm going to pay it back in some, in some way other than through money. You're not loaning me money. You're gonna, we're going to agree this community is going to pay my rent. And maybe, uh, you know, maybe it shouldn't pay your rent. Maybe you should go and live with the people in this circle until you get on your feet. Or maybe the whole concept of getting on your feet I don't know if I can say bullshit on your show, yeah, but I'm going to say bullshit. Maybe getting on your feet, other than the fact that that's offensive to people who are wheelchair users uh, and for other, for other reasons aren't able to stand, but metaphorically to get on your feet, get on your own two feet, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Maybe that concept is antithetical to what it is to be a human being born into community in which none of us is capable of meeting our own needs by ourselves. Maybe you were never supposed to get on your own two feet. Maybe we're all supposed to be helping each other stand or rise. We rise together. We fall together. I have needs that you don't have, so you can help me meet my needs. You have needs that I don't have, and I have lots of gifts that I can share with you. So the porch circles are not for experts on anything other than your own questions and your willingness to be humble enough to ask these questions of each other. And we have something in the pipeline that I think is going to really help deepen this in the city of Asheville and elsewhere because, um, you know, you don't have to be the kind of person who goes on a 10-day silent retreat in the desert to be into this. I like 10-day silent retreats in the desert, v at least, is that at least <laughs> theoretically. Yeah. I haven't done Vipassana stuff uh, yet, but, I, you know, I, I go on retreats, I lead retreats. A lot of people, that's not their thing. Yeah. Daily life is their thing, and it's everybody's thing, and we're all struggling. There is no one that's not carrying some kind of massive secret burden. If we would meet together once a week or even once a month 
for an hour for a cup of coffee and just start to ask what's good, what's bad? What's your sense of purpose for the common good and how can we help each other? And just experimented with that for three months. Like, I'd be willing to give a guarantee that your life would never be the same again. I would take. Uh, I would not take the uh, opposite on that bet. I would be on your team. It would be hard. It'd be hard. Shoot, I need. Yeah. I need someone to bet against You'd, it. It'd be hard pressed. Um, How are we going to make the money that's going to make me unhappy if you don't bet against me? Yeah. <laughs> the, oh, I need. To, I need to have so, so much though. money so that I can prove that money doesn't make you happy. Isn't that a funny you know. thing? That's one. So um, there's a couple. And I know that Sarah asked questions. I feel like I've been running this. But there's a couple things that have come up in the way that you've told stories and the stories that you've told that have, like, reminded me of moments. One of them is this idea that often we hear stories from people who have lived so far in the other direction. Like uh, the billionaire is the example that says money doesn't make you happy, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the Kanye West lyric that says, uh, money's not everything, but not having it is. And mm. and there's a there's so the 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 middle ground in there. And do you need to become a billionaire to know that it's not <laughs> worth it? And do you need to you know live on Skid Row to find Jesus and uh, be in alignment, air quote, with whatever God you, you you're working towards? Um, and and so like those things have always uh, troubled me in in the versions of stories that are often told, which are like very extreme. Yeah. And then all of a sudden very extreme in the other direction. And somehow there's right. And there's no pride or honor in the middle of like finding it and not knowing and, and not pretending to know. So there's that. And then you consider saying like, what, what is the better story? And I just, I get caught feeling uh life of pie uh-huh. was a book I read in, in like, grade school and i don't know if i read it the right way but the way that the story <laughs> stuck to me was and are you familiar with the of life course, of pie? Yeah. so like the way that the story stuck to me is that in the end uh the the journalist is like yeah but this just doesn't sound like it's a great or possible and he goes well okay and then in a matter of minutes tells the story with real humans and it's terrible and he goes it, Honestly, whatever story you like, whatever story is better for you. And I don't know if that's like actually how it goes, but that's how I heard it. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm gonna choose the be- I'm gonna choose the better story. <laughs> and that's how I've been trying to like live since reading Life of Pi as like a 14 year old. And I don't know if that's actually the story, but that's what I heard. Does that resonate? Is that kind of where are you in somewhere of that? Well, my memory of Life of Pi is that he's had that. that what's going on in there is. There's 250 pages of that book that paint this extraordinary imaginative story involving animals, animals and, in a raft. and being on a raft. And and then there's about three or five pages toward the end that imply that what really happened is this absolutely horrifying, traumatic experience. Yes. And that what he's done is he's made up this story to help himself cope with the pain of it. Um, and... And all, all throughout the book also is are, are stories of the multiple religions that have affected his childhood. Oh, yeah, that's a beautiful piece. And, yeah, I mean, Jan Martel, it's funny, he's one of those writers who 
I know he's written other books, but this is the one, you know. And 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 I, you know, I shouldn't close off the possibility he's going to write something like that yeah. uh, uh, again. It's it's pretty rare to write something like Life of Pi in any lifetime. Um, to to, you know, my initial response to that it's a, it's a it, I think it's a it's a it's something slightly different. I don't think we can know what's true. Of course, we we can't know what's fully true, but that doesn't mean we can't know anything. Right, and there's a there's been a there's been a uh, one of the gifts of postmodernism is to help us question authoritative and oppressive power structures and to listen to voices and that come from the margins, which causes me to even reflect on what I just said because I said us, right, and like the us that I thought existed when I twenty years ago when I was a graduate student in Belfast is not the same us that I now understand to exist, and the us that I appreciate and welcome and learn from today is still smaller than the us I will know a year and please God 50 years uh, from now um, I didn't think I never thought about the color of my skin I never thought about uh, my eth- ethnicity in a kind of a global multicultural sense I was living in Ireland so what I thought about was my power status as it were regarding Northern Irish eth- ethnicity mm. Protestant Catholic British Irish socioeconomic differences and things like that um to go to the so i've learned more about what us is us is far bigger than any one of us can imagine and the more uh, closer to let's call it the top of the pyramid of of privilege and, and power we are the more responsibility we have to be listening actively listening to other voices and asking what should I do with these resources I have? To the billionaire question, the richest person I know is one of the happiest, but he's happy in proportion to how much of his money he gives away. You know, he's um, in another part of the world, and, you know, one of the things he did with the money that he came into, and it was a lot of money. <laughs> it, was a, it was more money than most of us will ever be able to imagine. He made a thing, and a big company bought it from him. And it was a good thing. It, was a good, it, was a, it wasn't a missile. That's good. It, was, it wasn't a bomb. <laughs> it wasn't a chemical that, that, that poisons people. It was a, it was a helpful thing. And, um, and someone decided to give him and his partners a few hundred million dollars for it. Yeah. And um, one of the things he did was he built an apartment block in the city where he lives. He and his wife built this apartment block. Um, I think it has 40 apartments in it. And these are exclusively for women leaving abusive relationships to live in for free and be part of a community there that does these very same things that we're talking about. And he, you know, his name is not on the building. And uh, I'm, I'm being careful not to say more to identify him because he has no desire to be known yeah. for this. I think he's someone who understands happiness is actually proportionate to the service you're giving to the world. At the same time, there's some research that suggests uh, that in the U.S., there, that in any society, there's a certain amount of money, any, any capitalist-dominated society, there's a certain amount of money after which you start to have breathing space, right? Um, and uh, happiness does increase when you have breathing space. The slight pushback I would have on that is it matters less the more deeply embedded in community you are, how much money is in your bank account. Yeah. 
the more deeply embedded you are in emotionally mature community, community that's willing to say, how much money you have is not a mark of your intrinsic value. How much money you have is not even necessarily a mark of how hard you have worked. Um, how much money you have usually has something to do with who your parents were, how you got started in life, and certainly the race that is ascribed to you, the ethnicity that's, as, that's ascribed to you, and to say whether there were, there were high levels of lead toxicity in the water that you were drinking when you were a child, these kinds of things that are s structural injustices. So the only question, I don't care if you're a billionaire or you are uh, housing insecure, the only question is what are you doing with your resources and who are the safe people who can help you with your lack? And there's a lot of us who should be doing more with the resources that we have, certainly to create the spaces in which folk who really, really lack something in our society are in relationship with those of us that hold these things that we can share. That's the only way to live an ethical life. You know, and I'm going to be trying to do that for the rest of my life, and I'll yeah. be failing at it. I will be failing at it, but I won't be beating myself up over it because I will be in a porch circle that will continue to tell me, it's okay, Gareth, you're not perfect, but you don't need to be perfect. Or, you know what, mate, time to get up and get deeper into this thing again. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering specifically with regards to the Asheville community, what would you say to people that are listening? Mm. Um, again, people that we've identified have, have resources mm. to listen to a podcast. Um, what advice would you give to them to build a better community mm. here? Yeah. I love this city and I've been very welcomed here. And I, and I recognize that I'm, you know, like many people in the city, I was not born and raised here. So I want to tread respectfully and thoughtfully with gratitude. Um, the first thing I would do is pay attention to who's doing good works of service to the common good in this city. There's lots of them. Some formally through nonprofits and some individuals just doing quiet stuff. Pay attention to those people and go and ask them what you can do. Um, I can tell you the things I notice that um, give me hope and the things I notice that create curiosity. Hopeful things to me are anything that's free or reasonably priced or pay what you can afford. And there's a good number, particularly art-type art activities, storytelling nights, um, and we're, there's loads of those in the city, um, uh, uh, meetup groups, so on and so forth, that kind of stuff. Um, notice whose um, voices are being heard at things like city council meetings, county commission. Go, go meet, you know, if you're not already a county commissioner, and I have one or two friends who are, um, or a city councillor, go and meet one of your your councillors or commissioners. This is something about... In Northern Ireland, you know, we had these really deep, long-term problems that we applied massive energy to helping to resolve. One of the differences between Northern Ireland and the US, I always see it as being two sides of the coin. Everybody in Northern Ireland knows at least a handful of politicians. 
partly because there's only 1.7 million people living in Northern Ireland, partly because we're such a highly politicized society that, you know, eventually almost everyone considers running for office at some, at some point, and partly because it's a European culture where there's a, there's a um, we just do democracy differently there. You know, there's no such thing as trying to purge voter registration rolls. Um, we have automatic voter registration. We have proportional representation in a lot of our local elections, which is a form of rank order voting that's much fairer than a, than a majoritarianist system. And I always wondered when I came to the U.S., why do people in the U.S. complain so much about politics and then not get involved? And there's this weird thing where I think the U.S. has a monarchy and the U.K. is a republic. Um, and that, like, another thing about people in the U.K. is everybody knows a member of the royal family in some way. They've all, oh, yeah, I remember. I met the queen when I was nine. You know, and they don't, they don't have her on a pedestal. I find it so unusual that not only do former presidents continue to keep the title but senators and congresspeople as well could keep the title of this office that they were elected to hmm. once. You know, former UK prime ministers don't get to continue to be called prime minister. They're entirely private citizens. And it's, you know, when pres- ex-presidents say I'm a private citizen now, that's not true. They're not private citizens. They don't... They Secret don't, service walking around every day. Well, I mean, yeah. it's fair enough if they need, if they need yeah. security because there are actual threats. And I mean, that's one of the... One of the one of the, one of the things that needs to be honored about about yeah. people who run for political office is that it is it there's a cost to it for you know for most politicians it's not about violence although for some the threat of violence is is real and i don't you know when people say i hate politicians and they're all liars no human beings are flawed and there's a lot of people who get into politics whatever their political hue if that word translates here they did it because they wanted to make the society better. We may disagree with what their ideologies were, and then the outcomes of their actions are how we how we evaluate whether or not they meant what they said uh, or had integrity. I think in in a, a city this size, it's a wonderfully compact city. You can get to know your councillors. You can get to know people at other levels of public office, and go and ask them how you can help them achieve a vision for the common good. Right, And the common good simply means the most good for everybody. It doesn't mean some good for some people and some bad for others. It means the most good for everybody. Another question would be, ask yourself, who are the people who've been here the longest? And what is happening to their communities? Because some of the people who've been here the longest are being gentrified out of their neighborhoods, are not able to afford to live in their own family homes anymore, um, and there is a racial disparity here. And if you have some power and some resources around this, I believe I have a responsibility to be asking myself, uh, am I doing, am I living with integrity here? Um, I, I think for the U.S. generally, the, I mean, my, my you know, one-stop plan to solve everything that's wrong with America right now, I can give you that. <laughs> it's automatic voter registration across the country annually, every year, the way it's done in the UK, you get a form mailed to your house, you fill it out, you mail it back in. You're automatically registered to vote. Um, uh, Political districts being uh, apportioned by an entirely independent commission to avoid gerrymandering. Rank order voting, where you rank your candidates in order of preference. The outcomes of those kinds of elections, we do this in Northern Ireland, are that instead of a minority gets everything they want and most people get nothing that they want, what happens is 
sometimes even most people, but certainly many people get something they can live with. And lots of, and some people get everything they wanted. And fewer people get nothing that they wanted. Um, and then there has to be a process of profound self-examination as a society. And I'm a U.S. citizen now, so I'm part of this. As a society, into the foundations of this nation and who this nation was founded on top of and the legacy of how indigenous people have been treated by the people who, quote-unquote, settled this land and the legacy of the experience of the Africans who were brought here in chains. And until that's faced, I think everything else is kind of temporary skirmishing. And I speak this with a fair degree of nervousness about saying it. I'm not speaking it into the society. I'm part of this society. I've benefited from the society. And I came from a place that did it really badly for a long, long time and has discovered lately 